0: This episode was originally a live conversation streamed on January, 2022. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and click the bell to receive notifications for future live streams.
1: You need to have patterns, repeatable patterns that you can demonstrate because essentially people buy a projection into the future and they don't buy a fantasy, they buy a projection.
0: Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Selvan. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to today's live session. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Heine Grüter. Heine, a very well welcome and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for the invitation, Sylvan.
0: You are the CEO at Meridian Partners, a strategy and M and A consultant, and in the past you've actually also been the CEO at Unique, for example, one of our identified startup mafias. So I first want to talk about this topic real quick before we dive into the M and A world. What was so special about Unique that gave rise to so many new companies over time? I think uh, probably
1: first of all it's it's a uh, it's it's a it's a matter of timing. So. Um, unique was one of the early movers in this digital agency space in switzerland and one of the bigger ones so i think naturally people have been you know within the space very early on they've seen the boom and bust and uh, through that obviously gained some significant experience about what works and what doesn't work i think a second uh, aspect is company was successful because it had very talented people um, so that's a that's always a good source for um, successful entrepreneurial uh, ventures and the third one was related to the timing when you're building your company um, as an early mover you know yourself you need a very entrepreneurial spirit and uh, I think that's probably been the, the, the three main drivers when I think about it, why there's been quite a few companies coming out of the, the unique universe.
0: Yeah, it certainly is a, a very interesting and fascinating environment that you built there. And if we look at your track record, it's incredible about to see what MA deals like Students.ch, Qumram Infocentric, WebTeaser, and many more that you actually let as a deal captain, so to speak. So if you want to start with the M&A topic, the focus of today's session, what are the right reasons to sell your company and maybe also what are the wrong reasons to sell your company?
1: I think the, the, it's important to understand essentially that if you sell your company, you, you're you uh, basically in, in the context of believing that somebody else is a better owner for your company than the, the current shareholders or the future management team would do a better job. And having said that, I think it's not, you know, there's no black and white about good reasons and bad reasons. But obviously, if there is a, a clear integration case in terms of creating synergies in a, in a bigger context, for instance, um, or having access to, to bigger clients, etc. Um, is is probably a better reason than I'm tired of doing this and I want somebody else to to take my job. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think um, the reason why you want to sell, and there's literally a ton of reasons why this could happen, also determines what you can expect from such a process. So, you know, if you're a strong... synergy case with a lot of potential buyers Uh, you obviously can expect more interest higher valuation than if you're um, if you look at the other side of the scale sort of a fire sale situation where you just look for somebody who takes over your problem
0: yeah i mean that makes sense uh, if you think about it and when you were talking about you know, uh, sort of the, the story and also why you can actually sell a company if there's a better owner for it, there's a, a quote I'm paraphrasing here from Peter Thiel that comes to mind. He once said that when you sell a company, the price is usually never right. It's either too high or too low, because if you have a great idea about where you want to bring the company, you probably sell for too little. But if you don't have any good ideas and the company's probably not worth that much, then you probably sell for too high. What, what do you think about that statement? Would you agree with that? Or is it a bit uh, too far from reality? Um, it's always
1: a bit hard to disagree with Peter Thiel if you look <laughs> at his track record. Um, so I would say that's that's probably true. Um, on the other hand, um, I think, and, and, and that's probably going to be a topic that we'll touch upon in, in various instances as we go through your questions. At the end of the day, it's a matter, it's always... One of the um, most important aspects here is really timing, and you can always look back and you know ask yourself what would have happened if and should we have done this. And essentially, um, I think if you if you're well prepared and if you um, execute professionally, you can most of the times assume that whatever comes out of such a process is actually the right price that's that's how i see it Um, and if you if you totally convinced that uh, whatever came out of a process is not going to satisfy your expectations you know there's always there's always a plan a not to sell
0: so i want to talk about the timing and also uh, the preparation that you have to do in a second Just before we do so, a quick note to everybody watching. If you have any questions for Heiner, feel free to leave a comment so we can also address your questions and your topics around that M&A topic in our live session today. So, Heiner, you mentioned the importance of timing. So ask very bluntly, when is the right time to actually sell your company? Is there such thing as a right timing?
1: I think there's better. there's, There's certainly as or. Drivers you can look at to to determine whether timing is better or not so good. Um, and it's I would think of that in, in, in terms of internal drivers and external drivers. So let's start with the simpler one, the external drivers. You look at the market, you know, we'll see how 22 turns out. But 21 was certainly a good year. The last years were good. Um, Companies are buying other companies. There's a lot of activity. Um, The the, the, the overall um, uh, constitution of the economy, despite some of the irritations that we have, is is, is still uh, very solid. So if you look at the the, the broader um, economy and obviously also your specific industry, there's there's cycles when things look brighter and uh, times when things don't look that bright um that's the external part so i think you you know it's 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 it, there's nothing wrong about having an eye on that and 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 uh the second part which is uh i think uh, probably more important is is internal factors um and then there's um, there's always an opportunity to be too early or too late. I think um, you need to, in order to be able to enter such a process, you need to fulfill some criteria. And it's not, you know, it's not a mathematical game, but um, it's, it's something that you can feel. And if you have discussions with people that have done it or, or some experts in the field, they can help you determine um, whether you're too early or too late. Some of the aspects are you need enough track records. Um, it's totally hopeless to go out there and um, having basically no track record, no no KPIs, no company history, and then expecting people to believe your projections, which are basically just made up. We should not forget M&A is not the same as a financing round. In a financing round, that's totally that's totally okay. People would only invest in your company if they believe that they can attend x get a 10x or 20x out of a process anyway so the details don't really matter i would say <laughs> in an m a context it's a it's a totally different ball game um so track record is important on the other side you also have to make sure that you still have enough fantasy and upside potential that you you you, you believe you can achieve with your with your company so if you're basically exhausted if you run out of growth ideas it's it's too late to then go to the market yeah. And then there's obviously some, some, some other aspects, uh, operational stability, uh,
0: positive momentum, etc. You mentioned the importance of you know having something to show, some KPIs, some track record. Are there any certain numbers where you say, hey, below these numbers, it doesn't make even sense to think about an MA or exit strategy because it's way too early. Is there such a, a threshold?
1: It really depends on, on, on the industry. I think it also depends a little bit on the, on the basically um, strategic rationale. So, you know, if, if you want to measure that by revenue or profitability, I think it's not possible. There's you know, certain rules of thumb. Like if you're a SaaS business and you want to sell to a US company, don't go there. If you, if you're below five million ARR. But those are rules of thumb and um, I don't think they're applicable in any, any specific uh, case.
0: I would say
1: what's important is you need to have patterns, repeatable patterns that you can demonstrate because essentially people buy a projection into the future and they don't buy a fantasy, they buy a projection and that's a clear distinction. So you need, when I say track record, I mean, um, not only numbers, but also relationships, you know, simple things like we make 15 calls and sell one piece of software. Yeah. Um, if that's, if you have some consistency, then you, 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 you have some predictability. Critical size is certainly certainly also um, a topic, but uh, that's, that's hard to, to measure in, in, in clear numbers. I think what's also very important people should not forget is, is the, the sheer fact of secured funding. So sometimes I see situations where people say, you know, we'll run out of cash six months from now, so, so maybe we should better sell. <laughs> um, that's that's bad timing. You need to make sure whether it's through financing rounds or company already being profitable, that you don't run out of cash during the process because just puts you... Put you under time pressure, something you really want to avoid.
0: Then, you know, you mentioned one thing that you have to have that predictability. So to also add value to the company that might eventually buy you. So what are the different options that I can choose from for my M&A strategy or ask differently, what are the reasons why a different company, another company should buy my company?
1: It's really, I mean, you have a whole set of, 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 um, of motifs. It can go from... Um, let's say in an extreme case, pure IP situation, you have developed something that's just very important, uh, know-how, protectable IP, um, company has no revenue, has no profitability. I mean, something a typical case you would see in the, in the, in the, in the, in the biotech space, for instance, in Switzerland on the other end um, you see you know in a, in a, in a much more mature case it's it's really it really boils down to numbers and synergies and how much cost synergies do we get etc cetera, etc cetera. i think as a general rule um it's important in the situation to really put yourself in the shoes of of, of the potential buyer um i think one mistake uh, to avoid is to project your thinking too much into the buyer's uh, mind, um, you know, of course you have to think about, you know, what what would they do with our company, how could they create uh, additional value, but I think it's also, um, there's a danger to draw premature conclusions about that, and I think in the process in an m and process one of the challenges is to balance sort of telling a story and leaving enough room for some fantasy for potential buyers to come up with their own reasoning behind an acquisition.
0: Yeah, That sounds like a not so easy balance to strike.
1: That is um, in fact not that easy but um, when you when you think about the, uh, the sort of the core elements, what you're doing in presenting, in, at least in an initial phase, before you probably get into deeper conversations with potential buyers, it's really about facts and figures. Um, it's not. I mean, there's a there's a there's a substantial marketing part to an MA and uh, uh, process, no question about it, but. Uh, people should not be naive. At the end of the day, it really boils down to facts and figures. And um, those are what they are. And you can always, you know, um, be a bit more intelligent or creative about what KPIs, for instance, to show, what to leave out. But the most, I think that the best thing to do is to really, again, put yourself in the shoes of a potential buyer beauty is always in the eyes of the beholder and, you know, nobody's perfect. And even if some of the figures you show are not that great, if you have an explanation for that, I think it's always, it adds credibility to your story.
0: Yeah. I also want to pause here and answer some questions that we already got from the audience. So here, one I think that is a good fit for the topic we're talking about right now is from Maximilian. He asks, from experience, for a startup willing to be sold, would you recommend to try to get a deal while growth momentum is high, but with limited revenues? Or would it be worth waiting to increase revenues to a certain point, but taking the risk of the growth slowing down?
1: I think if you know, it comes down to the, to, the, to the timing aspect that we have touched upon, I think if you're, if you're just, if you don't have any momentum, you don't have a, you know, a customer base that's big enough so you can draw some conclusions from it. Um, it's just too early. So I think if you're, you know, anybody can, anybody can, can, can go to the market and say, yesterday we had one client, today we have two. So we have, we double our clients every, uh, every day. You know, this is uh this is unfortunately not how buyers think. So I would be, I would put, I would, I would try to get some uh, critical size before I go to the market, even if your growth is slowing down a little bit.
0: I think this is also very interesting. So due to privacy reasons, you can't see. It's from Mark Schuster. Um, he's with UiPath, a very interesting SaaS startup. How do you see Switzerland compared to Europe startups in terms of M&A for SaaS companies? And also, what sector do you see most growing? I think that's a really interesting sort of macro perspective to get your thoughts on.
1: If you look at the dynamics in Switzerland, it's just pretty breathtaking. Um, I've been in the, let's say, in the startup ecosystem for um, decades now. Unfortunately, I have to say decades and the d- development the market has taken in terms of um financing facilities in terms of teams i think it's pretty amazing and one thing that i always thought was um, was a bit sad about switzerland was that a lot of the startups that i had seen or or, or smaller companies their focus was really on the swiss market, maybe germany but they never had sort of a a more at least European footprint in mind. So I think Switzerland is really catching up. I think Germany is probably still a bit ahead, but also if you see the quality of teams, um, people with experience, people that have failed and tried again, which is uh, always, you know, nobody wants to fail, but it certainly, there's there's uh, steep learning curves involved in in that. So I think that... uh, uh, Switzerland is more and more becoming an interesting, uh, interesting place also for M&A. Now, in terms of SaaS startups, um, which uh, which uh, the user is asking here specifically, I think the great thing here is you don't really need a local presence. Um, SaaS SaaS is, is typically sold, or more and more sold remotely. So I think it's actually Switzerland is a is is, is certainly a good place to start a SaaS company.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for your thoughts on this. So I now want to go back um, to, we talked about the timing and also sort of the prep work in terms of uh, what milestones, what KPI should you focus on. Now I want to talk about the outreach and the initial interest. So once you're ready, you say, hey, I, I am at the stage where it actually makes sense to start uh, an M&A process. How do we get in touch with potential buyers? What happens at that stage and how do you actually find them?
1: Well, that's a miracle. That's it's all magic. No, seriously. I mean, it's. I always say, you know, in, 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 if in the bigger picture, these, these processes look pretty standardized, and they are, in fact. There's clear faces. Um, in practical terms, they tend to turn out a bit chaotic every once in a while. <laughs> I think that's sort of the challenge to, to, to manage that over time. So it all starts with, and or I should also add that you need to be. Um, fortunately, there's a good word now for this. You need to be agile. So, you know, you basically we can say what do you need to 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 get to a, a, a let's say a, a, a substantiated discussion with a potential buyer. You need um, an information memorandum that basically covers all relevant aspects of your company, which products, which market, which client, etc., etc. You need a bit of a short version of that, uh, call it teaser, call it one pager, something that you can use without disclosing the company's name to, to, to a, give a potential buyer a first impression of what you're actually talking about. Um, you need, as a third element, a very sound financial model. It doesn't need to be super sophisticated, but it needs to show the drivers, and it needs to be rooted in the past and and, and, and create some sort of an predi- easy way to understand how the company will develop, what the drivers will be going forward. And basically, the fourth element is a simple non-disclosure agreement. And you basically develop those... Um, um, uh, in as you in parallel as you start compiling a list of potential buyers, why in parallel? Well, the reality is you don't do this. You know, of, of course, there's phases where you focus on on one thing and and on the other, but as you move with the um, for instance with the the information memorandum, you start realizing what. The real strategic rationale of a potential buyer could be, and that has obviously an impact on the question who you would contact, who could be on your, on your shortlist. And talking about the shortlist, which is basically the entry point. Um, I think you start with a hypothesis about who would be potential buyers, what the reasoning would be. You know, they want access to the Swiss market and not an untypical motif, for instance, for service providers. Mm-hmm. um it's an interesting market it's hard to get in you know why not buy number one two three in this market and have the footprint um, and then you start thinking who who on the planet could be interest could have that strategic intent um, and and uh, basically starting from that you then um, try to narrow down your your uh, your your um, search, in terms of geography size you know you start getting a feeling of the valuation of of your company Mm -hmm. and you basically have some reverse engineering and say how big would a potential buyer have to be in order to be able to finance such a transaction it doesn't help if you get a lot of interest from people that don't have any money (laughs) right sure um and and um you basically then iterate uh those and, and you know, at a given point in time, your investment story that you present in the information memorandum um, logically connects to the list of potential buyers that you have on your list, and and that's when the the adventure, the go to market, so to say, starts.
0: Is there any certain number that you would recommend to have on that short list? You know, where you say we should at least reach out to 20 or a hundred companies or what's your take there? Does that even make sense to have a fixed number in your head?
1: I wouldn't say it makes sense to have a fixed number. Um, it depends a little bit on the conviction that you have about your, your rationale. So if you I'll give you an example, if you know there's a company or there's five companies in a specific industry that are heavily consolidating the industry, buying local heroes in all the countries. Then you probably don't need 50 of those to to have a success in in, in your process, because you have to assume that if you have a good story to tell, one of these guys will say, you know, we're in the business of consolidating these players, so why not consolidate and and, and acquire this uh, player? If your story becomes a little bit more fuzzy, <laughs> um, you know, it's it's with, uh, with any search process, then your list has to be longer. Um, I could not give you an exact number, but I would say that when I do, uh, when I create such lists and when before we start, I think a, a, a reasonable number is between 50 and 100 names.
0: Yeah, got it.
1: You also have to assume that, you know, one one aspect here to add is if if your your search, for whatever reason, has some geographical constraints, let's say we only look for buyers in Europe, Mm -hmm. that limits the number then compared to a situation where you say, you know, we have an IP case that could be interesting for any technology company starting in the US, uh, Europe, Asia, then by nature, you have a much longer list, right? You should also keep in mind that somehow you need to be able to then manage um, the work that comes with contacting the people. That's why I say there's also an upper limit.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's often forgotten. I could imagine where you just think, oh yeah, the more the better, but then you also have to interact with all of them if you reach out to them. And that's actually my next question. You know, how do you actually reach out to them? Do you just send them a cold email? Do you try to leverage any introduction or any personal connections? How do you then send out and distribute the teaser, the one page that you created to the potential buyers?
1: I think that one, one um, important thing here to keep in mind is that um, the market has significantly changed. In the last years it's become uh, more and more um, uh, what should I say Pro- professional to the extent that people have no problem interacting with people they've never uh, talked to before um, so it's it's not a problem to to enter such a dis- discussion basically via email uh, it really uh, depends on um, or it really it's really, really important that you um, try to identify the right person to talk to. So there's always in, 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 in typical situations where you have also bigger companies uh, to sell, you, you typically would talk to companies that have an M&A department and their job is to look for interesting candidates. So they're not, they, you know, they, they don't get confused just because somebody gets in, in contact. With them. <laughs> uh, but you combine that very systematic approach, obviously, with some some personal relations that you have, um, and um, I think through that you, you, you typically get to a, a very solid solid list of, of
0: potential candidates. And in that outreach, what role does the management, also the founders, in case of a startup, play? Do they actively send out those uh, you know information, or would you recommend to go through a third party like? You and use your services. What would you recommend there to actually do that initial outreach?
1: I would strongly recommend to use a third party for that because you want to really keep confidential confidentiality, and you okay. cannot do that if you say, "Hello, I'm Sylvan from Company XYZ. Would you be interested in talking about a poten- a potentially acquiring our company?" So to. One reason to actually work with uh, with uh, with M&A advisors is to keep confidentiality very early on in the process, and I would always recommend to do that, and then get in contact with those based on a on a teaser document that doesn't even um, um, doesn't even tell the name of the company. Yeah. Such a teaser document still needs to be precise enough, so you can't say, you know, we're selling a software company in Europe, would you be interested, that's just not <laughs> precise enough. So you need to find the right balance between uh, disclosing some interesting facts about your company and at the same time making sure that it's not too obvious who you're selling.
0: This talk is supported by Small PDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade, and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. and i think that's also i don't want to dig too deep into that but you also have a, a certain reputational risk right because if your clients would hear that you're trying to sell the company you might actually even lose some of your clients so that confidentiality that you mentioned that's really important to also be professional and don't have any rumors in the market that's true that's true and i think it also says something about
1: the professionality of your company if you're being professional with regards to confidentiality on the other hand i think you also don't need to be too paranoid about that you know i've hardly ever seen situations where i had the impression that that somebody that was involved somehow abused um abused this information to to either you know hire people away from you or talk to your clients you know if you're if you're talking to the right person, those guys are typically very professional. And realistically, they're also not too close to the operational business. So the MA guy typically doesn't go for lunch with the HR department. Yeah. So I would be professional but not paranoid. I mean, at the end of the day, you want to get in contact with these people, and if you're not willing to also demonstrate um some some or, or give him some information about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know people will just walk away and say, you know, this is just too clumsy. We we yeah. we uh, every question we ask is I oh, will tell you later we'll tell you later.
0: Okay? I have one last question for the outreach. So now assume you made the outreach and you have the first initial interest from an AIM and A department or someone else how do you then move from this initial outreach to a more intimate conversation where you can also disclose more details, more information, and also actually eventually enter negotiation part? How do you make that transition and move to the next phase?
1: Very practically speaking, uh, once you have sent out this teaser, maybe you had an initial phone conversation because somebody has some you know, first questions about it, then the, the, the first magic moment is basically that um, the potential buyer would sign a non-disclosure agreement, and then you provide actually the information memorandum. Not before that. And that's also the first time they actually formally know who the sellers are. Okay. Um, following that, um, you get some add-on questions that can most of the time be handled or hopefully be handled by the m advisor because he or she understands well enough what they're actually selling. And sort of my role in that would then be to also qualify the interest. You know, you don't want to spend your time with people that are just tire kicking or want to, you know, are bored and think, you know, great, I have another uh, information memorandum to read over the weekend. It's always interesting to know what other people do. Um, so trying to qualify that, uh, is important. If you have the impression that there's, there's some serious interest and there's also a match, you also want to rule out, um, people that are interested for the wrong reasons. doesn't happen very often, but you know, if somebody tells you it's great that you have 100% SaaS revenue, but actually you make 80% time and material and 20% SaaS revenue. It's probably the moment to to clarify that. And that's then follow up with um, Q and A sessions with typically CEO, CTO, CFO, whoever is, uh, um, uh, can, can, can basically uh, give a, give a good picture uh, or answer some of the, some of the questions and the goal Is eventually to get potential buyers to demonstrate their interest in a meaningful way. That means you should ask then at a given point in time and don't, don't get too impatient about it, but you should ask for a non binding offer, some sort of a written statement about why we are interested, how we envisage, envisage to do that and, and what a potential Transaction structure could look like, also including um, uh, valuation parameters, and that's then the, the the point where you can say, okay, now I've shown you the information memorandum. You came up with the first uh, basically a declaration of interest. Now we're talking, and then now it's getting serious. <laughs> now now it now it gets really serious. And it also, it can also get very time intensive. I think you should, uh, people should keep that in mind. Uh, and um, you need to also be focused during that period because sometimes you have 10, 12 uh, parties that are interested. And if you put yourself in the shoes of the, let's say, CEO of a company and you're going to the same questions over and over and over again, you know, you start, off, you start losing. A little bit through your enthusiasm, so uh, make sure that you have some time, and make sure also it's it's a, it's also a two-way uh, conversation. So ideally, you find out a lot about the motifs of the buyers, which then can be used again when you start negotiating the deal parameters. If you have no clue why they're buying, if you have no clue what they find so great about the company, it's it's you're you're just leaving uh, potential on the table.
0: Yeah. And despite all these meetings and conversations taking place, you still have a business to run, right? So you have like two full-time jobs, basically, if you it's are great. in that process.
1: You still have your plan A, right? Yeah. And um, I mean, it's, you know, the process is exciting enough that you don't typically get too bored, but you should just be mentally prepared. You know, if you, if you have interested parties in Asia or in the U.S., they just you know they sit in uh, California, and your call starts at ten p.m. And if you then have um, no time because you're playing badminton, etc., it's just it's not it's not going to be helpful.
0: You also mentioned that there are certain points that you need to address in order to reach an agreement. So obviously, there's the company valuation, the purchase price. Maybe also an earnout period, so what are the important points from your experience that you really need to address in order to be able to eventually reach an agreement afterwards?
1: So I think that the, the foremost um, element which is maybe doesn't even show up too much in 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 deal documents eventually is a common understanding of what you're trying to achieve um. Because it, it has a lot of impact about how you structure the transaction, what the role of the management team is going to be going forward, et cetera, et cetera. And if you, if you just avoid discussing that because everybody's just focused on the EBTA multiple, then, you know, it's just, uh, you, you leave out an important element, which is the foundation for, for most of the discussions that you have. Okay. And I think you should, Clarify that integration scenario from a from not only from an internal perspective, management, employees, et cetera, but also make sure that it also makes sense from a client perspective. You know, migrating clients from system A to system B, will they like that? If if you are convinced that they will not like it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't do the transaction, but then maybe you should not be measured by how many clients you can uh, uh migrate. For instance, um, so the integration scenario is the basis, and then there's basically two pillars. One is the commercial terms, and the other one is the uh, legal terms. Um, commercial terms, I think, it's very straightforward. It's what everybody talks about: valuations, payment structure, earnout structure, how is it measured, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also some important um, um, levers within. Uh, legal terms which probably don't get that much attention um, it's about deal execution is it an asset deal, is it a share deal about liabilities uh, about representations and warranties you know something that's a, sometimes it's a bit of an of a, of a annoying discussion for, for founders you know which just build this up why do I have to guarantee all this you're now buying the company well if you have listed um, buyers or buyers that intend to IPO one of these days, you just have to make sure that they don't get, you know, they don't get too much crap in their books over time. So they just want to make sure that all all potential risks from a legal point of view, etc., are, are ruled out. And one last element: once you have basically agreed on commercial terms and basically legal terms is to make sure that you have some tax uh, advice in parallel. Usually, tax is, uh, is not the most important element, obviously, but it can have some significant impact on how you structure the deal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think you should not wait too long to get also uh, some, some tax advice at the table because once the deal structure is set, it's very hard to go back and say, by the way, we found out that there's a there's a tax disadvantage, could we change that?
0: Yeah, well, I think these are really good tips. I mean, I don't want to go into detail here because I think we could fill a whole book together uh, with all the details that you can discuss and negotiate here. But one thing I want to address is, what do you actually do if you have a different idea about the actual price? I would assume that this is probably almost always happening that the founding team might have a, a different idea. Too high or too little uh, about the price than potential buyers
1: well it's sort of the starting point to create happiness in a in a, in a pricing negotiation because you know if you if, if if both parties are totally happy eventually that's the goal but to start this conversation that's usually not the case I mean if i buy a, a a rock from you and you tell me it's 500 francs and i say okay i buy it for 500 francs it's a typical situation where you say stupid i should have said 800 francs <laughs> right so you need to make sure that you also create uh some room for both sides to 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 sort of um making sure that they have gotten the most out of 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 the situation it doesn't mean you have to poke too high it's not a game. It's 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 professionals negotiating amongst each others. But I'm just saying this conflict is sort of. It also creates the sort of happiness with with the outcome at the end of the uh, of the negotiation. Um, important things to, to 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 keep in mind is really you need to create the win-win situation. So it's one thing to to communicate. I want this. I want that. I want. Um, I'm not going to move here. It's If you need two parties to sign a document, it's you should also spend some time thinking about the situation of the other party. Not only the company, but also the people involved. What, what risks do they want to avoid? Where can you give them something that doesn't cost you a lot or that is not so important for you? And that's something that is basically nourished by extensive discussions with these parties before you even get to the point. That's why I said before, you you need to make sure that you're also in a in a two-way conversation and that you're not only answering questions, but um, you also make sure that you understand the company in the buying center, the people involved. Yeah. And then you need to be you know, you need to keep some sort of flexibility and manage expectations. That's usually part of the M&A advisor as well. And that's also a reason why you should probably have an, you shouldn't go there as a principal, but as an agent, because you always can go back and say, no, you know, I need
0: to talk to my client about your suggestion. You can really play that good cop, bad cop thing also a bit. So that's super important to have someone external there um, who actually helps you to to do it better at negotiations.
1: I think it's also important because you sometimes you you know you need to think about you need to create this whole package it's not just about the, the 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 SaaS revenue model there's a couple of other aspects which are important to keep in mind and it's just it's just a dialogue that needs to evolve over time and I think it's hard for the principal uh, to do that for time reasons but also because there's no cushion you know if i look in your face you turn red I know I already see your reaction, and I want to make sure that yeah. I have sort of a a wall or at least maybe not a wall, but a cushion between the ultimate decision maker and the and and uh, and uh, and the target
0: Let's also quickly talk about due diligence when and how does the due diligence process happen along the m and a process
1: so the entry ticket for due i mean the due diligence realistically the de facto. Due diligence—it starts on the, the first minute you get in contact with with a potential buyer. That's the reality. That's not what you mean with due diligence, but I think it's important to to understand you're building a level of trust on both sides. So if you meet if you miss every deadline that you communicate in the run up to the due diligence, you know it yeah. leaves the impression that those are probably not the most reliable guys you could ever imagine. So if they, if they tell you it's seven, you better check twice. If yeah. you build up this reputation of being reliable and precise, it really helps. And the, the, the formal due diligence, i.e. legal due diligence, tax due diligence, commercial, HR, etc., etc., usually starts after you have either a very sound non-binding offer or even better a signed term sheet, which can be much more detailed than just a non-binding
0: offer. And what are the documents that you need to have ready there? I know this probably also depends on case by case, but what are some of the general documents that you need to have ready and ideally probably prepared before you go into the process? Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, some of the documents are actually prepared or at least collected during the the the, the, the phase where you create the information memorandum. Right? Yep. Um, but let's say you need... Documents about your financials, about your team, about your product, about clients, and then some more formal stuff like social security, tax, etc., etc. And I mean, it would be take up simply too much time to 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 get too much into detail. But I would say, as a general rule, um, anything that is related to tax, financial, social security, etc. you should be able to show uh, basically a, a complete set of documents for the last three to five years. And then mm-hmm. if you talk about VAT, you know, quarterly statements, yearly statements for the last five years, it's cumbersome. But um, if, you, if you think about um, entering such an M&A process, um, you should already start thinking also about your housekeeping because yep. if you then need to come up with
0: all these documents, um, it's, 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 it's probably a bit too late. And are there any red flags that you absolutely want to avoid here? Of course, I can think about missing documents, but maybe there's something else that you can share from your experience.
1: I cannot say that the, the red flags, I mean, don't lie. Don't, don't, don't fabricate documents. Nobody is perfect. That's the reality. Um, so, um, but, but try to be as, as precise and uh, as complete as possible. One element which people, sh- people should not underestimate is the share history. That's probably something we should, we should people know, let, let, let people know. A buyer wants to understand the chain of ownership of of one hundred percent of the shares, and it needs to be documented in the right way. And a lot of companies don't have that, um, and it's 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 usually pretty time intensive to get that uh, get all the right legal documents. Sometimes you have to go back to shareholders that sold and say um, we need a, a, an accession here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That takes some time.
0: I wouldn't underestimate that. That's one of the classics people typically don't see. Maybe also one situation that I can imagine is, I don't know how severe it is, but maybe you see, oh, we don't have a legal action coming against us here in that case, but maybe that's something that might come up in the future. We just don't know yet. Maybe Uh you have a risk of losing one of your biggest clients, but you're not sure yet. How proactively do you communicate these things and how do you decide, what you actually share with a potential buyer and what you don't share.
1: I would always suggest to bring that up in internal discussions, not with potential buyers, but in internal discussions very early on. Mm-hmm. So people should should keep in mind also when you think about the role of the M&A advisor. I'm like a doctor. If I don't understand the, the situation of your body, how you feel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Don't tell me your back doesn't ache if it aches. My <laughs> diagnosis will always be wrong if I don't understand the the the, the 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 situation. I don't have all the facts. And I think you should not be paranoid because people are buyers are totally aware that there's business risks. You know, there's always a biggest client, and yes, there's a, an end date to that contract. And if they're not totally stupid, they will ask you for a list of the, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 percent biggest clients, maybe all of the clients. And they want to know what types of contract that they have. So you don't have to go back, go to the client, uh, to to the buyer and say, you know, they could terminate and actually they could terminate. Um, I think that those are those are basically business risks. There's some other risks where um, it really depends also a little bit on, on sort of uh, sometimes tax, tax assessments or legal assessments. So one classic is that you have a lot of um, freelancers and the contracts you have with the freelancers, they don't clearly regulate the IP rights. That's just something which is which will it's not going to fly in a due diligence. Um, so you better you better uh, make sure that you get get, get your act together there uh, as soon as possible. Um, and eventually it's also a, a little bit a question of the choreography. So maybe it's a bad idea to get up one, one morning and call the potential buyer and say, now we come to the list of the risks, one, two, three, four, five. So it's. You know, if you if you set it up, and that's where the marketing part comes in. Sell two, 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 two plus points, and 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 combine that with with a potential downside. Then you know you have communicate that, and it's 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 also a fair communication situation. Again, you know you don't have to be paranoid. Yes, the world could go under, but people know that. <laughs> um, and last uh, thought about that you should use the due diligence also as a um, situation or an opportunity to, to disclose some of the maybe not so, not so great aspects of your business because in the reps and warranties of, of a share purchase agreement, you will represent that some things are the way the buyer wants it to be. And if you, negotiate that in a, in a in a in a good way you can always say that everything that you disclosed during the di- the due diligence is excluded from from that representation so if you say you know all all the tables in our office are in good shape you should tell them there's one table that's broken and then you don't um, actually have to uh, pay if it turns out that if they find out later that the table is broken so you should also use the due diligence phase as to proactively uh bring things at the table that you probably want to disclose anyway to exclude them from reps and warranties which is actually the whole point i mean at the end of the day nobody's going to believe you that you're perfect anyway so you might as well just say yes there's a you know, there's a, uh, we have some damage there. There's, there's a li- little risk there, but uh, yeah, at the end, ho- hopefully, hopefully the upsides will, will outweigh the downsides. Yeah.
0: Very ways. good points.
1: In a serious way, this actually, you should not even enter, be in a situation where you enter a due diligence if, if there's a chance that you're not going to survive.
0: So of course we will also have a question for Dr. Heiner. When are we actually ready to sign? If, you know, when are you ready to sign a deal and execute it?
1: When there's a share purchase agreement, typically. That takes a few weeks to negotiate that. And it's as as, as easy as that. Formally that's the that's the deliverable you need to for, for an exit. Yeah.
0: And who's responsible for setting that up? Is it the buyer or the seller?
1: Um it's I would say in most of the cases, the the sellers create a draft of Mm -hmm. of a share purchase agreement and then it goes back some iterations, sometimes very cumbersome, long nights, a lot of details, very legalistic to some extent. And at a given point in time, people start thinking that they're tired now and all the, the material points are sorted out. It's also sort of a give and take situation. Uh, and then uh, you 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 you're ready to to basically get an execution version and sign.
0: And how long does this process, the whole M and A processes we just outlined it now, usually take? Do you have a, an average duration of such a process that you work with?
1: I would say preparation before you go to the market, typically probably three months, sometimes mm-hmm. a bit longer because. During the process, you you realize that you have to probably change some things, or you want to get to a certain milestone. Yeah. And then once you have addressed the market, meaning gotten in contact with potential buyers, I would say um, a realistic time frame is between three, four, probably six months. Yeah. you should keep in mind that you need to keep a certain sense of urgency in the process you know if you say you know there's a long line of interested parties but you know we have all the time in the world to negotiate with you it's just not a very credible, uh, credible, uh, credible position
0: what would be a, a better storyline there to sort of make that a bit more urgent
1: well, I think it's it to communicate, maybe not too early, but at a given point in time to start communicating what you're expecting from the process in terms of timing. So you say, you know, by the end of Q1, by the end of March, we expect you to hand in a, a non-binding offer no. just to keep the process going.
0: Yeah, no. really drive the
1: process. So it could become, you know, sort of a, a you know, it's, it's like when you, it's like buying something, uh, anything. You could analyze yourself to death. So, at a given point in time, you also have to make up your mind and say, "Well, you know, that's that's good enough to at least get to the point where we uh, reach the next milestone, i.e.,
0: an binding offer or a term sheet." So now, assume that the deal closed, um, but usually the deal, after, even after signing, is not fully done, right? So, what happens after the closing? You still have some reps and warranties, as you mentioned before, and you also might have to stay on with the buyer a bit longer most of
1: the times um the people aspect of buying a company is important enough that a buyer would like the the core people to to continue for a while or at least to make sure that there's a there's a there's a there's a professional transition and it could be anywhere from one year to probably two two and a half or three years um it's actually been less dramatic in recent um, periods, I think, but um, it really also depends on the, on your business model. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a professional service firm and it's really about all the talents you have. You don't have your own product and you you know, you basically buy these people. Um, and the other part is that you you have your representations and warranties for a period of 18 months up to a couple of years, depending on what type of weapon warranty, that's usually not a dramatic thing because if you've done your job, um, you should not get a problem with that. But still it's sort of lingering around and uh, until, you know, you still, you are to some extent on the hook for this uh, during this period.
0: So I think now we covered the full process from, how am I exit ready until the signing of the deal and beyond that? are there any last tips or additional thoughts that you want to share with the audience today?
1: I think we covered honestly we covered a lot um, maybe maybe one aspect that I would like to um, stress here is please be realistic. I mean, there's a couple of studies in Switzerland now about how many companies actually achieve an exit, and the number is around six percent. So, um, you know, you should you should you better always have a plan A because it's not like the the, the typical thing that happens. And in order to finish first, you have to first finish. So. Um, I think you know. Be realistic. To to get to an exit is 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 is, is astonishing enough, and then to get to whatever fantasy valuation um, is is even less um, uh, probable. Um, yeah, I would say don't be too focused on the exit, especially if in the early days. Always have your plan A because it could always, for whatever reason, could be that process doesn't result in an exit. Timing is important. We talked about it. Don't be too early. Don't be too late. And if you enter the process, enjoy the ride. It's a it's a roller coaster emotionally. It it. Uh, everybody you speak to would say, you know, there's been times where I loved it. There's times where I hated it. I was convinced 15 times that the deal would fall apart. So you're always sort of. Oscillating between total euphoria and the deep depression. And um, you, you, you need to, to make sure that those emotions don't get too out of control and just think that it's uh, given that not very many people actually achieve an exit. It's, it's sort of a unique experience and uh, a great learning experience.
0: I think I feel like we could talk on for many more hours, but I think we're going to stop here. Heiner, thank you so much for sharing all these wonderful insights. It's been super impressive and also very insightful. So thank you so much for joining us today. And we're super excited to see what other companies you'll help to sell in the future. I'm sure there are a few deals in the making.
1: There are. Thanks a lot, Silvan. It was great, great questions. Thanks a lot.
0: We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.